Welcome to the Unplugged Podcast with Deb Ozarko, episode number seven. Hi there, and welcome to the Unplugged Podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. And I'm your status quo-crushing host, Deb Ozarko, returning to you with another dose of weekly inspiration. And you can find this inspiration on iTunes, and now we're also on Stitcher, and it's also available at my cyber home at debozarko.com. That's D-E-B-O-Z-A-R-K-O.com. And I welcome you into my home, my cyber home, with an open heart anytime you're feeling the need to remember the, uh, the, the pure awesomeness of who you are. Because this is a web portal that I created to unite those of us, all of us, just like yourself, who are doing their part to co-create a better world. And believe it or not, it's happening. A better world is being co-created every single day. And when we remove ourselves from the cultural trance of the current paradigm that's, that's quickly making its way into the books of history, it's easier to both see and feel the shift that's happening. And how do I know this? Well, for me, I'm so deeply in tune with my uh, intuitive side that I can actually feel it. But I know that a lot of people want tangible proof. So here's what I'm also noticing and what I'm seeing. So the tangible proof that proves that we are shifting into a different paradigm is that I'm noticing that more and more people are, are actually embracing simpler lives. More people are reconnecting with nature and they're also embracing the the divine compassion of a plant-based lifestyle that embraces all living beings. But that's not all. I'm noticing that there's more people who have tapped into that inner courage to live more authentically with open hearts and minds. And at the same time, they're connecting with their purpose and then they're really going for it. So the shift from a, a separated consciousness to a unity consciousness is really happening, folks. And it may still seem like humanity is a disaster running at breakneck speed over the the precipice towards self-annihilation. And who knows? I mean, there's a very real possibility that this may still be the end result. But that said, I actually prefer to focus on the shift and the hope that this shift represents. And that is why I created this podcast in the first place. It's created to connect all of you out there listening to the, the amazing people that I'm meeting in my life and also the people that I'm being intuitively guided to seek out to prove that this shift is real. And through the power of their stories, my hope is that you'll be inspired to connect to your own passion and purpose and do what you came here to do in this in this rather interesting time of planetary history. The bottom line though, is that we're here to make a difference. We're here to live, to laugh, to love, and to serve. 
each of us has a purpose, a very unique purpose that includes those four simple components. And when we connect to that essential part of who we are, we change the world and shift ourselves out of this ridiculous mess that we've gotten ourselves into. So yes, it's actually that simple. And one thing to remember, breakdown always precedes breakthrough. So I invite you to keep that in mind when you start noticing things collapsing around you. And that pertains to your personal life as well as the state of the global world. So breakdown is not such a bad thing after all. It's really important to to be open-minded enough to, uh, to be able to reframe things that are happening in our world. And for me, one of the many ways that I keep my, uh, my hope meter on high is that I surround myself with inspirational people who truly and deeply care. People who are, they're connected to their hearts, their spirits, and their purpose. And I've been blessed in my life to have so many beautiful souls in my life. People who move the world and make a difference for all living beings. People who are leading the uh, compassionate revolution towards higher consciousness that includes animals, the planet, and humanity. People who inspire many to change the world with their own sense of purpose, their own unique sense of purpose. And that means, you know, like maybe you're a musician and you want to get out there and change the world with your music because it's amazing how many lives have been changed through the power of a song or a book. The written word is just as powerful or art. So we are all creators at our core. So remember that. Now, speaking of beautiful souls, today's podcast is a chat that I have with one of the most beautiful souls in my life. My dear friend and one of the most compassionate people I've ever met, Ray Sakura. Now, Ray is truly a champion for compassionate living, for animals, for the planet, for humanity, and of course, for oneself. And a quick side note to remember for you all. It's just not possible to co-create a better world if you neglect the very person leading the charge. And I think you can probably guess, I'm referring to you. So Ray will very gently remind us of that, that exact fact today. Now, Ray is one of those people who, she just moves with her spirit. Her roots are firmly grounded in her heart, not in any one physical location. In the almost uh, 15 years that I've known her, she's lived in the Middle East, in Europe, and she also alternates between New Mexico and Southeastern US. She's also a big traveler and she travels extensively with the very important life mission of always, always, always spreading the message of compassion wherever she goes. She truly exemplifies that old saying that home is where the heart is. And Ray's heart is like a beacon. It's like a a beaming blood bolt that penetrates everything. And in our household, we just call her a ray of sunshine. Everywhere she goes, her life purpose goes with her. Ray is 
so deeply connected to her life purpose that she is a true agent of change. She's a passionate voice for the animals, for the planet, and for living a a simpler, more heart-centered and connected life of inclusive love and compassion for all living beings. Ray also defines free spirit. She's a passionate world citizen with a heart so big, so open, and so giving that you just can't help but feel like you've been enveloped in a warm blanket of like divine love. And that's just by being in her presence. On the website, plantpeacedaily.org, that she shares with her also very passionate and compassionate partner, Jim Corcoran, they clearly invite everyone to live your life as a message of peace every single day. And their website also states that our choices as individuals are the solution to the many challenges facing the world. Our own health, all people, the environment, and other species benefit when we live in alignment with our most compassionate values. Plant Peace Daily provides individuals on the path of nonviolence and cruelty-free living with the information and tools needed to be a powerful force for peace. They also state that they hope to inspire individuals to see the connection between health, human rights, environmental preservation, and animal protection by offering programs and resources to help you live your values and effectively speak up for nonviolence for those without a voice in society. So... That is what's on their website, on the homepage. And this pretty well captures the essence of Ray Sakura. You know, there's an old saying that the eyes are the windows to the soul. And if and when you ever have the opportunity to look into the eyes of Ray Sakura, you truly do see her essence, her soul. Ray is one of those very rare individuals who fearlessly lives from that really vulnerable place of pure existence. She allows herself to feel, and I mean really feel, the darkness as well as the light in the world. And it's this connection to absolutely everything that makes you want to never leave her presence. The very first time I met her, it was like she cast a massive love spell on me (laughs) and one that never left. And one that I'm also eternally grateful for because it helped me define who I am. Ray Sakura is truly a gift to the world and I'm honored to be able to share her wisdom with all of you today. So sit back, open your mind and heart and enjoy. Ray, I just want to thank you for for being on this interview because it means a lot to me because you mean so much to me and I'm just really grateful that I'm able to extend your message of compassion out to listeners and readers out in listener and reader land. So thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, you have been an inspiration to me since I first met you. So I love that we're getting to reconnect and yeah, I'm just looking forward to where the conversation takes us. (laughs) Well, we've known each other for a while now. It was um, the first time I met you was in 1999. And that was back in the days when you were the co-founder of what is now the Institute for Humane Education. And 1999 actually for me was a symbolic year because it was the year that I finally woke up and switched from vegetarian to vegan. And Mm -hmm. 
And it was that workshop that I went to at what was then called the Center of Compassionate Living that really transformed my life. And I learned so much from you during that weekend. And then over the years, it's just been ongoing. And I know we've had some great times together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's been great. You know, I those that long history that we have, wow, I would love to have an aerial view of both of our paths since then. You know, just be able to see like, oh, you know, since then you've been here and I've been here. And, and where are just sort of our opening to living more in alignment with our values took us during all these years, you know, because I learned so much working with Zoe at the center and, you know, I grew so much through that and it just continues. Like I, I used to think, oh, you know, one day I'll just be this finished product and I'll be a compassionate being and I'll be totally in alignment with my values. And instead it's just been this ongoing process of surprises and openings and becoming more and more the person who I want to be who's more in alignment with my values and you've taken on like one thing that we talk about your journey and uh an aerial view of our paths you have done so many interesting things you've had taken on so many varying projects but the constant with you is that you've always been an outspoken advocate for animals for the planet and for humanity doesn't matter what you're doing where you are that remains completely constant for you and I know that you've you've traveled extensively and you're always teaching critical thinking but you do it always in a loving and compassionate way wherever you go and I'm curious to know you know what your journey was to this way of life Mm. Well, the journey, how far back do you want me to go? Do you want me to go back even before you and I met? <laughs> yeah, that would be really cool. Oh, my God. Well, you know, I think it really, it probably starts when I was five years old. Well, it probably starts be well before then. But what I'm aware of is at five years old, I was terrified of all animals. Well, I was terrified of all animals, including humans. Um, but, you know, if I would see a dog outside, I would come back in the house and I wouldn't go out for hours. You know, I was just afraid. I was just a fearful kid. And, you know, my, my father, you know, for better or worse, he, um, he was pretty clear on deciding what we were going to do with our childhoods, and he had decided our childhood was not going to be uh, anything about fear, certainly not fear of animals. So he came home from the animal shelter in our town with this small puppy and said, you're going to sit every night for an hour with this puppy on your lap until you get used to animals. And I was terrified. I would like, you know, sit with my back pressed against the refrigerator, the side of the refrigerator with this dog on my lap. And this is like the sweetest little mixed breed pup. And I think the puppy was as scared as I was, you know, because I wasn't petting the dog. I was just like, ah, get this thing away from me. 
And I remember this moment when it all flipped and I just thought, okay, let me look, at least look at the puppy's eyes. And I looked in the eyes of the puppy and everything shifted. You know, I could see, I don't know what I saw in those eyes except a dear friend and probably least threatening being I had ever locked eyes with. And it changed everything for me. And that dog became my best friend. We were inseparable. But that dog was like, you know, they talk about gateway drugs. Um, that was my gateway animal. Um, she, her name was Sandy, and she was the gateway animal to being able to look in the eyes of every being and see a connection. And, you know, that was every being. That was um, a rat who, you know, this another student in our school had a shoebox with a rat, a pet rat, and her mother told her she had to get rid of the rat. And I looked in the shoebox and I was like, ooh, I'll take the rat home with me. You know, it was just nonstop. It was the animals who we have strong cultural negativity about. It was um, every animal, wild animals, domestic animals. It was just non-stop for me every animal whose eyes I looked into oh this is family this is family and that dog actually ended up being my only confidant for about 16 years and the only one who I really trusted in the world just my my touchstone my grounding force and it's amazing one one little being can just turn your life in a whole nother direction and and I just think that's so powerful, you know, and I love to remember that when I have the opportunity to introduce, say, in our neighborhood, introduce kids to their first non-human friend. You know, and then for me, it just kind of grew and grew. And when I was 15, I had eaten a, just eaten a hot dog, you know, like a regular hot dog. And I was in Chicago with a friend and I downed the hot dog. I don't even think I chewed. I was so happy with it. And I ate the hot dog. And then she said, ooh, let's go in here. And it was a leather shop. And there were skins hanging from the ceiling and on the walls. And and it just struck me at that moment. And I said, oh, her name's Deb. And I said, Deb, uh, don't buy anything in here. It's It's dead animals. And the woman behind the counter said to me in a gentle way, not not mean or anything, but she asked me a question that changed my life. She said, oh, do you eat meat? And my 15-year-old brain, processing, what does meat have to do with dead animals? That was my first thought. And I was processing it, and then I thought, oh, my God, I can't even believe it. I've never made this connection. And the light bulb went on, and I turned to them, and I said, no, I don't eat meat. And then my friend looked at me. She had just seen me down the hot dog. You know, and so <laughs> we got out of that shop and she said to me, why'd you lie in there? Why'd you tell the woman you don't eat meat? I said, because I don't anymore. And from that moment, I was 15. From that moment, I never ate any animals. Again, no animal flesh, but I was still eating eggs and dairy and wearing leather you know, I just, there were just connections I hadn't made yet. And, and I had no one to turn to. I didn't know the word vegetarian. Um, it was a few years before I met my first vegetarian or person who called herself that. And I said, what is that? When she called herself a vegetarian and 
she said, you know, I don't eat meat. And I said, oh, no meat? I said, like, no fish, no chicken, no meat? She said, yeah, no meat. I said, it's called a vegetarian? I was so excited. And I, and I had this label for myself, which I was really excited about, an identity. And then when I uh, learned about the dairy industry, that flipped my world upside down. I was renting this little cabin from a dairy farmer. I was 20 years old. I was in college at University of Wisconsin and, you know, America's dairy land. And I heard a sound from my landlord's barn and I lived fairly close. I couldn't see the barn from where I lived. I was a bike ride away and I got on my bike and I went over and he and some guy I didn't know were loading calves onto a semi and they were pushing some calves still had like uh, dangling umbilical cords. Some were still wet and wobbly. Some were maybe, you know, like a, a day or two old. And they were shoving them up on this semi. And I said, what are you doing? And he explained that it was the male calves and that those calves were being sent to a veal plant, a veal facility. And they were going to be kept there for a short time in the process there and how he had no use for the males. And he said, oh, you know, you know, we don't even need the males to impregnate the cows. You know, Danny. And I'm like, I knew Danny. He was the artificial inseminator in the area. And, and I said, yeah, I know Danny. And, and it was just crazy to watch them do this pushing. And I said, what is the sound I hear? What's going on? And he said, oh, you hear the cows. And, and I said, can I go see him? They were behind the barn. And he said, yeah, yeah, but you know, they'll be fine. So don't get all upset. You know, they'll be fine. And I went back there and the mother's mouths were wide open and they were screaming. They were bellowing for their babies and pressing all of them, trying to get to the barbed wire and past it, pushing against the barbed wire. And some had blood in their fur and they just wanted their babies. And I, I came out and I just told them, I said, I will never buy anything with dairy again. No way. And he said, you'll get over it. They'll get over it. And luckily, I never got over it. Um, so it, it changed it for me. And it was years before I heard the word vegan. <laughs> I didn't even know what that word was. <laughs> but I just started visiting places. I wanted to know, what am I supporting? You know, so I started visiting like, wow, where do eggs come from? And I wanted to see it firsthand. I'm a real slow study, so I need to <laughs> hear the reality, see the reality, you know, really see it with my own eyes. But once I see it, I'm very clear, you know, I am not going to be someone who supports this, and I am going to share this reality every chance I get. And that, unbeknownst to me, became my whole path, my life, and... From there, it was just saying yes to open doors, you know, people in places that allowed me to share in an inviting way. You know, I, I, I didn't want to go around. That didn't seem like a good life to me to go around telling people, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're bad. Uh, that just didn't seem like a good life. And so instead, I wanted a life that was like, let me first show you the reality and then let me invite you to a possibility. You know, we can we can really be with our lives supporting what we believe in. There's a possibility. We can co-create 
a compassionate world. We don't have to support things we don't believe in. And if for me, if I couldn't do it with love, and if I couldn't do it in an inviting way, it wasn't going to be sustainable. And so that was the direction it all took. And and the other things that came my way were just gifts along the way, um, discovering Vipassana meditation, which really helped me to stay grounded and and positive and loving in it and not to go into that negative space of, you know, I'd like to blow up the world and all the humans with it. Um, you know, oh, I go there once in a while, but, you know, I can always come back to that loving place. <laughs> wow. So it sounds like um, you've had quite the evolution. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think in, in every step, I I actually didn't know I was an angry person until my first meditation course. And um, I didn't realize I had a well of anger unexpressed inside me until I first, I think it was 1984, it was the first time I sat down and was quiet <laughs> in my whole life. You know, I had never been with myself, really. Not enough to really feel what was in there. And I was like, oh, my God. I had such anger. It was like, wow, Darth Vader emerged the first time I sat down. And and that was really good for me to understand that and to see, you know, it was very easy then to see myself in others, to see others in me. It was, at that point, it was impossible to see an enemy. And that has helped me so much in this work, you know. You know, we, we moved into this area of New Mexico, and it's a it's an area that's very culturally mixed. And there are a lot of people who have recently moved from Chihuahua, Mexico, who live in the area, and they don't speak English. And luckily, I speak Spanish, so I'm able to connect with them. And when I moved in, the the neighbors who are um, English speaking said, "Watch out for that neighbor. Watch out for that neighbor. You know, that one's an asshole. That one's this. That one's that." And I said, "Oh." You know, I, I guess I'll reserve any judgment till I get to know them myself. But I just listened to what people said, and they had just stories about these people. And what I discovered was these really kind, wonderful people who were doing what was familiar to them. That's it. That's what they're doing. They grew up in a place where animals are things. Um, they're not part of the family. You would never let them in the house. They're burglar alarms. Um, they're used to keep animal, other animals in control. That's who dogs are. You know, they're that. And different animals are different things. Goats are food. They're nothing else. So they grew up with that. And, you know, as much as we would like to judge that, and what we know and... So these are these really kind people, and I had to really work with this. Like, okay, you know, a dog who's been tied up for years on a four-foot chain um, with no shelter. Oh, how am I going to deal with that neighbor? <laughs> you know, and, and each of them, without seeing them as the enemy, because as soon as I see them as the enemy, I'm going to react in a way that isn't going to help them examine things in a more loving way. And... They'll just see me as the enemy, and 
nothing will change, nothing uh, with them or their children. And so it's been a really amazing process here. I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot uh, living with these folks as my neighbors. And and their children shifting. And, and so, yeah, it's been, we're all learning here <laughs> by being thrown into this melting pot that we live in and, and to do it in a way that doesn't make anyone the enemy. And I, this one neighbor, uh, Omero, um, he's the one who had the dog tied up on the short chain. And I went over, I introduced myself in Spanish, said, I'm your new neighbor, this is where I live, I pointed. And and I said, you know, oh, tell me about your dog. And he said, oh, this is Yubi. And I said, oh, Yubi, Yubi's so beautiful. And how long has Yubi been on the chain? And he said, oh, four years. Oh. You know, and it was like, oh, this is... Uh, <laughs> A 140-pound Burmese mountain dog with thick fur who's in the New Mexico sun and rain and snow (laughs) 24-7. And I said, hey, I said, I have an idea. Why don't you and I build Yubi a doghouse? And he said, why? And I said, oh, because, you know, Yubi probably gets hot in the sun and cold in the winter and wet in the rain and that's a tough life. And so I think that would be great. He said, well, why would you want to do that? I said, because I love Yubi. And I was like petting Yubi the whole time. And he said, you love a dog? And I said, yes, I love a dog, of course. And he said, why do you love a dog? And I said, oh, you know, my heart's that big. I can love animals human and non-human, I can love trees, my heart can hold it all, you know, I can love you and your family, I can love my own family, you know, I said, your heart's that big too, you know, you can hold all that, hearts are really big, and he just laughed, and he's, they call, actually call me Raina, Ray doesn't make sense to them, so he said, oh, Raina, you're kind of crazy, and I said, yeah, I'm crazy, but crazy with a really big heart like yours. <laughs> so um, things have changed for Yubi since then. That was two years ago. And Yubi has a huge, beautiful doghouse. Yubi isn't on the chain anymore. Um, he said Yubi was dangerous and couldn't be free. And I said, oh, let's just try it. I've never seen Yubi be dangerous. And so now Yubi is kind of a, the neighborhood dog. Yubi gets to go. Yubi spends a lot of time here lying down in our basil and tomatoes and smashing them to bits. And, um, you know, Yubi has a life now, but I notice like the kids are changing. The kids come and they tell me if they see a situation where they think an animal isn't being treated well. And But it, it's, it takes such patience, you know, to just in a loving way, just not come in and think, you know, oh, I'm going to fix this right now. <laughs> You know, to just invite people to a different way. And I notice it's just, it's shifting, you know. At one house that ha- also has an outside dog, I brought, um, I got a, a gift. It was around last Christmas, and it was a plug-in water dish that they could plug in so the dog wouldn't be licking old ice. And 
So I brought it, and the kids thought it was a gift for them, and they were like, regalo, which means gift. Oh, regalo. I said, well, actually, it's not for you. And so this the dog got this plug-in water dish. I said, but you can't just leave it out there assuming everything's okay. And one of the kids, I gave him the job. Every day you go out, and you're going to wash the dish out and refill it with fresh water, just like you would like. And he's doing it. Like, he's just doing it. He's on that job. And... Those, I think that shifts things more than going in and saying, you're wrong and, you know, we're going to take this dog, you're wrong. And so I've, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've learned a lot having such close neighbors and having them from such a different culture. And, you know, what you're doing is exemplifying the power of love. And it's just, it's really interesting hearing your evolutionary journey about how it started just by looking into Sandy's eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say that the eyes are the windows to the soul. So, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds like there was a soul connection there. And then yeah. you talked about that incident with the hot dog, where you were asked a really powerful question that shifted your whole perspective again. And mm-hmm. then you started asking questions and now you are the change that you wish to see in the world. And now people are following you. And now they're on their evolutionary path of awakening. I mean, isn't that beautiful? It is. And, you know, and I keep learning. You know, I really, like for me, this this path is not so much about, oh, I need everybody to understand me and my choices. It's more about I want to understand them and their choices and where they're coming from. So it's more... You know, when you talk about asking questions, I ask a boatload of questions of people. Even in the most confrontational situations, I'll say, oh, you know, tell me what that means for you. What does it mean? Like a fly fisherman or whoever. Oh, what does this mean for you doing this? You know, what does it give to you? I want to know. I want to understand. And and that has made all the difference. And you know, there's this great saying by Colleen Patrick Goudreau, it's don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Do something, anything. And, and just with, um, you know, with the questions that you're asking in such a loving way, you're shifting perspective, opening minds, opening hearts. So what, you know, and you always do everything in such a loving, compassionate way. So I'd love to hear how you define compassion and what you feel must happen for our species to to connect to that authentic essence at the core of our being because it's been taken away and culture just keeps taking it away from us and most people are so you know externally focused that they're always looking outside of themselves for answers for solutions but they always forget that you know, we have all of our truth within. So I'd love to hear what you think about, you know, about connecting to compassion based on, you know, how you feel about it. I think, you know, for me, compassion is about seeing connection and, and not seeing it's me and other, whoever that other is. And, and I think that is, how compassion grows. Um, you know, if, if I 
look at another human and I say, oh, there's this disconnect. There's me and then there's this other. Um, I'm already creating a conflict. And there, compassion is about really being able to connect. And I mean, the, the definition of compassion is to suffer with. Um, I kind of extend that definition to be to suffer with, to feel joy with, um, to connect with. <laughs> so I extend it beyond just to suffer with, which is the like literal definition. And, you know, there's so much pain that's caused when we see separation, when, when we see someone as other. You know, there's that golden rule. There's a version of it in pretty much every religion and spiritual practice um, that do unto others as you would like to have done unto you. And, you know, and it's also, I think, don't do unto others what you don't want done unto you. But who is other? I think that's the key of compassion. How do we define other? And and it doesn't have to stop with other humans. It doesn't have to stop with, you know, just those of our own culture. And it doesn't have to stop with even animals. You know, it's like, it's it's all life. And I think it's really powerful to just be open to that possibility that we are, we're just absolutely part of all of it. And I know that that can be a really far out concept for a lot of people that, you know, I'm just a bunch of subatomic particles bumping into, you know, your subatomic particles and we're all part of one, one whole. And what we can do together is very powerful if it's based in love. It's also very powerful if it's based in hate, but, um, we can, we can really recreate pictures. Someone can come at us with such anger, with such hate. You know, and of course I've had it happen many times. You know, some of the places I work, I've had people throw things at me and, you know, get so angry at me. And, and people can come at us with hate, but that we get to choose how we respond. We're not victims of how someone approaches us. And if someone comes at me with anger or hate uh, I see it as this opportunity to like repaint the picture. Oh, you're coming at me with this package, and the package is filled with hate. Oh, no, thank you. I'm I'm not interested in your package. Um, but I have one for you. <laughs> Maybe you'll <laughs> like mine. You know, here's one I have for you, and it's based in love and caring. And what do you think of my package? Um, you know, we get to really choose. We don't have to just accept, oh, somebody's coming at me in anger. Okay, we're going to have anger together. Mm. I don't think it works that way. You know, I had I work in the Middle East regularly, and the last time I was there, you know, we have simultaneous translation, translation during the programs, and so I'm wearing a headset and a microphone, and everyone is, and there's a translation booth, and this man was shouting at me. I work with uh, mostly Arab and Muslim and Druze populations, um, the Druze, it's like D-R-U-Z-E, it's a, another Arabic uh, religion. And I work with those populations mostly. And this man, uh, he was Muslim, and this, he was yelling, we don't want your culture, 
we don't want you here. Don't come here. And he was just shouting at me. And then he was shouting things from the Quran. And I'm looking at the translation booth because they weren't translating that. I said, you know, translate, translate. And they're like, no. You know, he's just shouting ridiculous things from the Quran. We're not going to translate it. And, and, you know, basically he was just shouting over and over, we don't want your culture. And I said, which culture don't you want? the USA culture or the culture of compassion? And he said, we don't want either one. And I said, okay, you know, the USA culture, you're not really getting it because I'm not a typical American, so don't worry about that. I'm not bringing in that culture. And the culture of compassion, you really can't stop that force. It's coming. And even if I never come here again, that culture of compassion is is spreading and it's coming here and it will come through social media through tv through newspaper you can't stop that force of compassion um, so maybe it's good if you just settle down and figure out how you want to respond when it comes because it's coming and this is a great opportunity to figure out how you're going to respond in your life when you're culture chooses compassion for all beings and you know I just I think um, well he didn't settle down much but (laughs) 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 it would have been great if he had but he stayed you know you can't ask for much more than that (laughs) well you've done you've done like tireless work for for animals and and for compassion for all beings for so many years. And, you know, Mm -hmm. based on what you just said, are you noticing that there's um, a shift towards compassion? Because I know that you've been immersed in it for so long and you've seen so many ugly things, but are you starting to see a, a few more beautiful things? Are you starting to see a shift in that direction? I am, and I have to sometimes remind myself to focus on how far things have come in terms of compassionate living and people accepting compassionate living because I have a tendency and it's not the healthiest to only look at how far we have to go and that is a tough thing to do. You have to kind of look back and celebrate the victories and see how far things have come. If someone had told me 10 years ago that there would be these successful all-vegan restaurants in every major city that there would be chains like Native Foods and, you know, all these different restaurants that are opening up all over and that people were embracing that and that vegan was is now a word that, you know, I say it and everybody knows what that word means. If somebody would have told me 10 years ago that was coming in such a short time, I would have said, no way. You know, if somebody would have told me that five thousand people would show up for an animal rights demonstration and march in Tel Aviv, I would have said, no, never happened. You know, if somebody would have told me that the animal rights movement in Italy was massive, I would have said, that's not going to happen. You know, those are all realities now. And it is shifting. And, you know, of course, You know, I'd love to say that I'm just in the moment and I accept whatever the universe drops in our laps, uh, presents in front of us. Uh, 
but sometimes I get impatient because, you know, it's it's just like, oh my God, really? People would still even consider wearing fur? Like that's a <laughs> no-brainer. That's just a no-brainer. Oh, come on. And so sometimes I get a little impatient, like, I can't even believe we're still in this process. It would be for me like if we were still talking about that African Americans are actually human beings. Like, hello, folks. Like that was decided a long time ago. You know. (laughs) So I sometimes feel like I'm still in the midst of that. You know, like people, really? You can't see a living being in front of you? You know, come on. So it takes some patience, but it helps a lot if I look back and see how far we've come. Wow. I mean, honestly, you know, 35 years ago, vegetarian wasn't a well-known word, not where I lived. And let's see, how long have I been vegetarian? I'm 57 and I was vegetarian at 15, so it's been a while. But, you know, that word wasn't even known. You can't find anyone now who doesn't know that that word anywhere on the globe. And that's pretty amazing. So we are evolving. And even with my impatience, I have to just sometimes just go where we are is perfect. It's perfect. And I can't, you know, we can't open other people's hearts for them. We can live our lives as an example of compassion. But I think a lot of burnout comes if we think we can close the gap for people between what they know and what they act on. We can't close that gap for people. They have to do that themselves. And the only one that we can work on is that gap between the reality of the processes that go into making our goods and services and entertainment and what people know about that reality. So we can just share the reality with people and we can be these living examples of not supporting those things. But we can't make people close that gap between what they know and what they're willing to act on. Um, and that has caused me and a lot of people a lot of frustration thinking I can do this you know like we're these big ego gods or something I can do this you know I can share this reality with this person and I can reach right in there and crack their heart open it's impossible Mm -hmm. it is impossible Um, but I think the most powerful thing we can do is keep loving them They're the people who we think are the least open, the least loving. They're the ones who need the most loving. And that's a really important thing to remember in this work. You know, like, you know, the people who scream at us and, you know, (laughs) you know, we we had a, a circus demo recently, just last weekend, and... I call it, I don't call it a protest, I call it an invitation to a peaceful community. And so, in the beginning, please remember why we're here. We're here to be a voice for the voiceless, but mainly we are here to be an invitation to a nonviolent, peaceful community that supports all life. And they're like, yes, yes, we know, we know, we're on board, and the signs all reflect that, and... um, I was standing next to a woman and a man went by and he was screaming, you bunch of idiots, you belong in cages. He's like screaming stuff from his car. And the woman next to me starts screaming 
back at him, like horrible things. And I just put my hand on her arm and I said, remember what you're here to represent. And she said, well, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, well, it's a really important thing. You are here to be an invitation to a peaceful community. And that's a big role. And I'm sure you can do it. So just right now, just be really quiet and take a breath and really think about, you know, you've been given the honor of that role. You know, try to fill that role. See if you can do that because that's all we can have here. And so she was she was actually quiet for the rest of the day. But I just think it's really important, you know, to represent what it is you're asking for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you talk about feeling that frustration that things aren't going as quickly as you'd like, I can totally relate to that because I often find that I get that way myself. But it's a great reminder you know, what you also said is that we certainly have come a long way in a relatively short period of time. But mm-hmm. like I know for myself, whenever I get into that state where I feel that frustration, like, oh my God, why is this taking so long? I find ways to bring myself back to my to that center so that I can stay true to my purpose. And I'm just wondering if you can share if you have any kind of rituals or methods that um, that you do to bring yourself back to that center whenever, you know, you derail. Oh, my God. So mm, I think it's, we wouldn't be human. And we wouldn't be ourselves as caring people, if we didn't sometimes hit a wall. You know, we're we're just humans, you know. Sometimes I say we're just a bunch of fleas on the earth's back and <laughs> we're all here just kind of doing our best and you know, I have I have times where I can barely handle doing this work. Uh, it's it's so challenging and and the most difficult actually that I've experienced in my 35 years of doing the work uh, was actually in the last few months and I took a a work trip and I'm used to when I do a work trip I'm doing education work but I'm also doing some rescues and it's balanced out a little bit and I witness some horrendous things but it's usually balanced out by a lot of uh, joyful experiences and you know so on this last work trip I just I witnessed things that broke my heart and and beyond broke it felt like it damaged my heart and there were I witnessed things I didn't want to share with anyone I didn't share with my partner and I couldn't come out of it I couldn't usually I'm like okay and that will I've witnessed it and that usually motivates me to do more to just step it up. And instead of that, um, I felt like I had been hit with a spiritual two-by-four that knocked me on my butt. And I couldn't come out of it. I couldn't come out of it. And then many people were saying to me, you have PTSD, post-traumatic stress. And and I was like, no, oh, you know, no, I don't, no, I don't. And... 
then I finally listened. I just thought, okay, maybe I do, you know, and I'm not really like a go to a therapist kind of person. And I did. I, I went to someone who specializes in post-traumatic stress. And he gave me some tests and he said, oh, yes. He said, you have post-traumatic stress disorder and you have compassion fatigue. I said, what? You know, I mean, have you ever heard of that, Deb, compassion fatigue? I've only just heard of it recently, but I don't know what it is. It is people who are in any helping field. So it can be social workers, uh, medical people, people who give their lives to serving others and helping others, do it for so long they reach a saturation point, and then they experience compassion fatigue. I'd never heard about it. And I'm not used to being this person who has to uh, find ways to come back to myself, but I stopped doing the things that care for me when I hit this wall. I stopped meditating, which I've been doing since 84. Um, I stopped meditating, I stopped eating healthy, I stopped getting good regular hard exercise, um, I just stopped caring for me, I gave up, I gave up, like I gave up on my life, I gave up on the planet, I just gave up, and it just took a little, just a little bit of a nudge from this person who works with PTSD, and he basically said, forget everything except taking care of yourself right now. And so I just, I stepped it up, you know, and I tend to like overwhelm things with solutions when I'm in a good headspace. So, so I did. So I'm like, I'm not only going back to my meditation, I'm going to double it. Oh, <laughs> I'm not only, you know, like, I'm like, I'm going to, I want to get myself back and I want to show up loving I cannot show up as this tired, hopeless person who can't function in the world. What kind of representative am I of compassionate living if I do that? So I just stepped it all up and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to join the community center and go swimming. So I get there and I'm like, you know, oh, I used to swim a mile a day and I haven't done that in many, many years, big swimming. And I got in the pool and I did my mile. And you know what it felt like? It was like I'm swimming for my life and I'm swimming for all of the living beings who I can speak for if I am a healthy representative. So go, girl. You just swim, swim, swim. So now I go in there three times a week and I swim a mile. And, you know, I always hike with the dogs. Like that will never stop because – that's almost like one of my service things that accidentally does me a lot of good. But I just, I got myself back. You know, it's like I woke up one day and I was like, oh, I'm back. I could just feel it. And not only was I back, but in a new way, in an even bigger, more loving, more confident way. And so that, when I was in that dark hole, which is what it felt like. I am in a dark hole and I can't breathe and I can't find my way out. I thought, this is absolute hell. I don't want to live. I can't live like this. So I really thought of it as a negative thing. Now I look at it as a positive. I had to, obviously, I had to hit bottom in order to find find my way again. 
you know, maybe reinvent how I do my work. And then when after I woke up and I'm like, I'm back. Um, these like crazy things. I don't know if I want to call them miracles. I can call them miracles. It's I'm not a religious person, but um, unexplainable, amazing synchronicity just was like bam, 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 showing up after I woke up that morning and thought, "Ooh, I'm back and more loving than ever." And this synchronicity has been amazing, just amazing. Like I, um, for three days, I had, I kept having this come into my head: "You're supposed to go do some work in India." And I'm like, where is that coming from? You know, I'm a practical person. And I couldn't find any practical reason for that popping up. <laughs> and <laughs> and I was like, I don't know where that's coming from. And then um, I was just asked by someone last night to please that he would fund me going to India and doing education programs. I did not bring it up that I was going to, you know, that that was even on my radar for where to go. Um, and I said, well, what do you mean you'll fund that? You know, any amount of trips, whatever you need to do it. You know, I want you to go to India and work with the people who are not vegan. And I said, okay. <laughs> you know, like, Okay. So those three days of having India pop into my head. I know this sounds very woo-woo, um, but I think sometimes like what we consider to be woo-woo is just letting go of control and trusting. And for me, that's the biggest tool, is to remember I'm not the boss. I have not got all the answers. I am not in charge here. But I will show up as a clear conduit. I will do whatever I have to do to show up as a clear conduit conduit to help that compassionate force in the world and just to stay really clear on that intention so that is that's my biggest tool I guess is to get out of the way and get get my ego out of the way I get out of the way and trust that there is a compassionate force and the timing's always right <laughs> yeah you know I don't at all think it's woo-woo Personally, I don't think it's at all woo-woo because I've experienced that myself. I experienced it, I've experienced bottoming out because I wasn't looking after myself and then being resurrected as a completely new person, someone who feels far more awake. And I think that um, especially with people who are very purpose-driven and service-oriented, that we have this illusion that looking after ourselves is selfish but it's actually the opposite. Neglecting ourselves is more selfish and very egotistical because then it takes us away from our purpose, our calling, from what we're supposed to be doing. So it's beautiful that you found your way back and that you've reconnected to, to swimming and to meditation. And I know you spend an enormous amount of time outdoors as well in nature. Yeah. And you know, I, we're on parallel paths there because I do exactly the same thing. Meditate, swimming, cycling, hiking with the dogs. <laughs> and all of that just completely recharges my inner batteries so that I feel far more passionate and giving and loving. And yeah. I think it's, it's great that you're sharing with, that with people so that they know, they remember that they too are important. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, what you just said is just spot on, you know, it's exactly right. And, and we forget, you know, we forget that caring for ourselves equals caring for all life around us. Uh, you know, that we cannot be this spokesperson, force for compassion, if we're tired, sick, depressed, any of that then we're, we do no good. We don't do the animals any good. We don't do the earth any good. Uh, we have to take care of ourselves first. And you're right. You know, I, you know, on the list of my to-do lists used to include like take care of him, her, him, her, him, her, everyone else, everything else. And I'm at the bottom of the list and I would rarely get to that part of the list, you know? And so it's really... If this has been a real eye opener for me, a good reminder of that I I have to be a healthy, strong person if I am going to be consistent in this work and effective. Mm-hmm. And compassion starts with ourselves. It really does. That's one the one that's probably the biggest gift that I learned through my own journey to where I'm at right now. And on that note, I know that. You have always lived such a beautiful, purposeful life of intention. And one of the, one of many beautiful things that I learned when I was with you and Zoe all those years ago was want or need. And I still think about that with every (laughs) single choice that I make. Is this a want or is this a need? (laughs) So I'd love for you to just share you know, of all the choices that you're faced with regularly in your daily life, what choices keep you the most firmly planted in that beautiful heart space of yours? Mm. Wow. Definitely the meditation. Uh, And definitely spending a lot of time outdoors connecting with all things non-human, um, those are really, really powerful. You know, in, in terms of the the want or need, um, you know, f- f- really figuring that out and having, it's, it's really a choice in life. Like I live very, very simply. I have, um, I don't have fancy things. You know, I have a a home that I love being in that's light-filled and I have gardens and uh, I have a lot of time. I have freedom of time. I get to choose what I do with my time. And for me, that's more valuable than all the uh, objects in the world, all the things. And it's more valuable than money. It's more valuable than anything. I get to choose what I do with every minute of my day. And so I'm able to really focus in on what's important to me but that has, you know, it's it's come with a funny price. And it doesn't feel like a big price to me. But, you know, I don't have the latest, coolest stuff. I'm not dressed in the latest fashions, you know. And when I go to yoga, I'm like, you know, I'm not in the cool spandex stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not cool. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> You know, I have like I'm a thrift store person. You, you know, you're, you're redefining cool. <laughs> yeah, I have my own brand of cool. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's been great for me. I have n- not had to worry about money. 
And I've really trusted that if I live with a strong, loving intention, I'll be provided for with the things that I need. That's really different than the things we want, Mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, I don't go to a spa. I only learned what a spa was fairly recently. I used to think it was this (laughs) thing you, like, you stick in the bathtub and make the water go all swirly. And uh, then somebody had to fill me in on the reality of what a spa was, you know. So I don't do those kinds of things, but I don't need those kinds of things, Um, and so really defining that, I live on on very little in terms of in the bank, but I, I really think it's about redefining wealth in our lives. What does a rich life look like? You know, I know a lot of people who are millionaires, millionaires. Like for some reason, I have a lot of them in my life, and I can guarantee you that does not automatically bring happiness. In fact, it often brings misery. And it doesn't have to bring misery, but, you know, some of the most joyful people I know have time, a lot of time and a lot of freedom, but not a lot of money. And I'm one of them. And, you know, so I've redefined wealth. I have such a rich life. I have my health. I have really loving family. My family relations are amazing. I have loving friends. Wow. I mean, what else can you ask for? I have a refrigerator full of organic food. I have gardens. And I feel like I'm like the wealthiest person in the world. Hmm. And you wouldn't see it on my bank statement for sure. <laughs> you know, it's just not showing up there. But wow, it's like, you know, I've come full circle with my family to a really loving place. Um, many of them are on an ethical vegan path and they're activists, which I never would have expected. And I didn't expect it um, at all. And that's been such a gift. So I don't know. I just have such a rich life, you know, completely unrelated to that bank statement. You know, I totally agree. I feel like I live my life so, so differently, especially as I get older, it gets simpler and simpler and simpler and stuff really is irrelevant. And I, you know, the fact that you talk about having a family that is so supportive and friends who are so supportive and a community that's so supportive, I totally agree that that is a much richer form of wealth than people could ever even imagine, especially in this culture that is so um, money focused and thing focused. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that. Now I have, uh, I have another question here because you come from such a, I mean, you've been so honest and so open about the fact that you do feel despair, but you find a way to get out of it. But you also, you also sound so hopeful. And I'd love if you could share what gives you hope in today's world. Mm. You know, I mean, hope is such a, wow, hope is a big word. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like, what are we hoping for? Um, I, I think a lot of my, the times when I don't feel hopeful are when I think I know where this story is going, the story we're living on earth. When I think I have a clue what the ending is to the story and exactly how we're supposed to get there, you know, like when that ego self just goes wild, Mm -hmm. then I feel hopeless because it's not going where I'm 
where I'm steering it. You know, it's not going according to my design, you know, big me. Um, that's when I feel hopeless. When I stop being so attached to that story of that I know where we're going and I know exactly how we can get there. When I let go of that story, I feel more hopeful because I have total faith then that things are going exactly according to some plan. I don't know what the plan is. I don't know where it's headed. But I trust that if I just show up open, I'm going to do my part in getting us wherever we're going. And I trust that. And I have to trust that exactly what I see going on here is perfect as it is. And that's not always easy. You know, really? Is a war with Syria, is that really where we have to go? Maybe. Maybe the planet, just like me personally, has to hit the darkest bottom before some big turnaround to choosing compassion and and choosing a more light-filled path. And, you know, if I fight that, if I fight that, it's like fighting it in myself. It's like saying, I, I can't be where I am. I can't be in this dark place. I can't be in this place of despair. No, the world can't be where it is. Wow, that is a, that's a setup for hopelessness. You know, that is just setting the bar so high and unrealistic and not trusting. You know, it's it's not an easy place. I call this earth school. And, and I don't remember signing up for earth school. And certainly no one showed me the whole curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because if they had, I probably would have said, oh, I think I'll keep looking around at other schools. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if I'm interested in this one. But... Whatever this curriculum is here, there are things we can control and there's a whole lot we can't control. And the only stuff that we can control is showing up open and honest and loving and being willing to trust and do our part. And, and that is enough right there to keep you hopeful because you can, you can do that. You can accomplish that, that just showing up and it's not like having the, the whole plan laid out for the whole planet and thinking you get to do it. Wow, you're just, that is such a setup for hopelessness. And yeah, so I think that's the only way. And it's not that I don't sometimes feel hopeless. You know, if, I, if I'm looking in the eyes of a being who's suffering horribly and I, there's nothing in my power I can do, wow, that's just, that's the hardest for me. That's the hardest, is to just then walk away knowing there's nothing I can do in that situation. I've done everything I can do, and still the suffering is happening. That's the biggest trust, that if I can't do anything in this situation, it is exactly as it's going to be. That's the reality of the situation. And either someone else who has powers I don't have is going to come along and change that, or this is part of that big plan. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I heard this story the other night. I came in and my partner, JC, was listening to public radio. And, and I came in and heard this story about a man in Sumatra. And it was a story really about palm oil. But 
this guy just ended up telling this story and he told the story of he used to be a hunter and he would hunt gibbons you know gibbons are primates for anyone who doesn't know and if you look them up you'll fall in love um and he would hunt gibbons and he shot one he tells the story of shooting this gibbon four times up in a tree before she finally fell down to the ground and she was leaning against the tree and he looked and he saw she was holding a baby and she was protecting the baby from the shots and holding on as long as she could and he describes it and he says I heard her cry like a human she just kept crying and crying like a human and just before she died she reached out her arms and handed me her baby And I heard the story, and I sunk down to my knees. I was, I had nothing left. Um, I'm even crying now telling it, because it's such a, um, it's, it goes right to the heart. Mm -hmm. You talk about compassion or empathy, you know, you're in that mother's body. What she felt, having to hand over that child and say, please, at least take care of my baby, really. And what the man said is, I never hunted it again after that. And he tells people about this. And so in that sort of trusting that bigger plan, which is very hard to do sometimes, I think, wow, how many gibbons and other animals have been saved by her life, by that man who experienced his heart opening and telling others about it. And he no longer hunts. So many lives have been saved in the years he hasn't hunted. And who is he told who no longer hunts? So, wow, as as helpless as that feels, you know, to be in, I have been in those situations where I can't help that one being. I can't. That one being just gave her life or his life. And I wasn't able to help. But how many other lives were then saved? Wow, is this part of some plan that I don't have a clue about? I meant to just trust. I have to show up loving. I can't control everything. Uh, and there's pain. You know, it's kind of like the, the Buddha said, you know, you have to embrace the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's, it's all part of life on earth. And it's not easy. <laughs> No. And I think what you say is the hardest part is surrendering. It's, it's, is not trying to control the outcome because we all, I think we all incarnate with, with an ego that wants to control the outcome, you know, whether it's for good or for the opposite. Yes. That story, though, that you told about the Gibbon Hunter reminds me of that. Uh, there's a TEDx talk, which I'm sure you've probably seen with that fellow, uh, Damien, Damien Mander, I think his name is. He's amazing. Amazing. Very moving. And his story is very similar, how he it took the sacrifice of, well, more than one, but I think there was one in particular that really finally got to his heart and now he's becoming a he's become a really vocal outspoken advocate for compassion for all living beings 
So the way the universe works is, um, well, you and I were talking about this before we started recording about how sometimes the most beautiful gifts come in really ugly, sometimes violent, death-filled packages. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, when people do wake up, there is that hope. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, have you ever thought like, oh, this person's a lost cause. Oh, that person's a lost cause. You know, <laughs> you know, I used to think that many, many years ago, decades ago. Now I, I never think that, never. Because, you know, I mean, one minute before I was vegan, I wasn't. And one minute before I was vegetarian, I wasn't. And there are no lost causes. And I've seen too many people like long ago who I thought were lost causes who became spokespeople for other species and for the earth. You know, I mean, look at Howard Lyman, you know, like the, you know, Montana's big shot cattle rancher turned, you know, open hearted vegan spokesperson who has transformed so many lives. And we, so many of us have histories that are, you know, they're not about being compassionate people. You know, I am married to someone who works 24 seven as a ethical vegan activist and an activist for the earth who used to be a hunter and fisherman. Um, so there, there are no lost causes. And I think it's really important to remember when you're standing in front of the person you just want to be so angry at because of what they're doing inside that person is this gigantic compassionate being. And the part of them that is showing up not compassionate is a very thin veneer on the outside. And it's really important to remember that. There are no lost causes out there. You know, we could have all been lost causes if our lives hadn't gone exactly as they went. That's so true. And, you know, I, I, when you asked me if uh, if there's ever been people that I've thought were lost causes, there's been many, many times when I felt that myself. And not so much anymore because I've been humbled by the universe too many times now and I finally get it. <laughs> <laughs> but every now and then that still happens and... Once again, boom, the universe says, you see, <laughs> you went back to that old pattern of, you know, of judgment and it, that just right. doesn't work. It doesn't work. But I, I love the way you say it though. I mean, how one minute you were a mediator and the next minute you were vegan, you know, it's just, it's, you never know. You just never know. Exactly. So I have one more question that I ask everybody at the end of every interview. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a magic wand and could wave it over the planet, what kind of world would you create? Oh, I love that. Mm. You just gave me, you gave me big power right there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. I've been waiting for that wand. <laughs> and this wand has a lot of magic in it. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's pretty easy. It comes right to mind where... We don't see any separation after that wand is waved. Um, everyone, every being is coming from this place of just pure love. And there is no separation. You know, when I come face to face with, you know, the peach tree in our yard. And we're able to totally understand each other on every level. Just that pure understanding 
of what we're all made of. And I think the overwhelming sort of energy that that wand created, because I'm so picturing that it just happened, um, the, the overwhelming feeling is of gratitude, just of like such gratitude for the amazing lives that we're all living and for the beauty. Wow, the beauty from the smallest little spider to the largest elephant to just see that, that we can all look around and just see the absolute beauty in it all and, and live in such gratitude and, and wanting the best, wanting the best for the planet, all of us wanting the best for every individual life and for everyone on the planet. Yeah, really, it's a beautiful place. If you find that wand, could you send it overnight mail? <laughs> it's my favorite question to end with because the answers are so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And the common link is that, you know, everybody just wants a compassionate, loving, peaceful world. And, you know, I know that there's so many of us. I know that we all want that inside of our hearts. I know mm -hmm. that we all want that. And if we just keep hearing it enough, then we'll all act on that. Yes, I agree. I'm with you. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> I love you, Debo Zarco. You're amazing. Uh, oh, Ray. Oh, my gosh. I wish I could just wrap my arms around you right now. and just. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am so much. grateful for you. I'm so grateful for the work that you do, how you show up that you're in my compassionate family. Um, I don't know what I did to deserve you, but I am so glad you're in my family. Ditto. And I know what you did. <laughs> you just, all you did is you opened your heart and mine was open to receive. That's it. It's that easy. <laughs> oh, I love you, Deb. I, I love look you forward too, to when I next get to be with you. Yes, thank you so much. Bye for now. Okay, bye-bye. Wow, there you have it, folks. The beautiful Ray Sakura. And you can learn more about Ray's work, her workshops, her programs, and her speaking schedule at her website, plantpeacedaily.org. As always, I'll be posting this information as well as the links to their book, Plant Peace Daily, Everyday Outreach for People Who Care, at my website at debozarco.com. And remember... Join the expanding community of conscious paradigm shifters when you're at my website. And when you sign up, you have immediate free access to a very powerful meditation that I've created to help you connect to your own life purpose so that you can do your part to help us move out of this crazy paradigm at rocket speed. At least that's my hope anyway. So with that, that's the end of another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world. <music>